0: and welcome to Orthoscience Bites. Today I'm joined by Dr. Bijil Parikh. Dr. Parikh is the Medical Director of the Molecular Diagnostics Laboratory at Barnes-Jewish Hospital and an Assistant Professor of Pathology and Immunology at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. He is the author of numerous publications with his clinical research centered on aspects of laboratory testing involving viral, immunologic, and molecular diagnostics, a specific focus on the implementation of next-generation sequencing approaches. Recently, Dr. Parikh authored an article published in Clinical Microbiology Newsletter titled Laboratory Strategies for Diagnosis and Monitoring of Hepatitis C Virus Infection. Thank you, Dr. Parikh, for joining me today for a more in-depth discussion of this article.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So let's start with the epidemiology of the hepatitis C virus, or HCV for short. How prevalent is HCV in the US and globally, and how is it transmitted?
1: Sure, so globally, there's an estimated 71 million people who have chronic HCV infection with about one and a half million new infections occurring uh, every year. So the WHO estimated that in 2019, we had approximately 290,000 individuals that died worldwide from hepatitis C. In the US, we have about 4.1 million people that are estimated to be living with hepatitis C. And most of these individuals don't know that they have the virus. Uh, An important note about that 4.1 million, it's roughly 1% of the population. So it's a a pretty sizable amount. If we dig deeper into the data, HCV can either be chronic or acute, and that depends on whether the infection was acquired within the last 12 months or not. In 2018, the year we have the most complete data for the U.S., for chronic HCV infection, a third of new infections were reported in the baby boomer generation. And so these are adults in their mid-50s to early 70s. This used to be the most prevalent group for HCV infection. However, another third of infections have been reported in the millennial age group. So these are adults in their 20s to 30s. And then another quarter of new infections were reported in in the Generation X or adults in their late 30s to early 50s. For acute HCV, the estimated number of annual HCV infections was almost five times higher in 2018 than it was in 2010. So this amounts to nearly 60,000 new cases of HCV. Most of these are attributed to increases in HCV infections in the millennial age group, and acute HCV infections increased disproportionately in four states that have been affected by the opioid epidemic. These are Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia. As far as how the virus is transmitted, basically the virus can be spread when a person comes into contact with blood from an infected person. So globally, this can occur through unsafe healthcare or unscreened blood transfusions, This is fairly rare in the U.S., however, globally and in the U.S., injection drug use is the most common risk factor for HCV acquisition, so approximately 60% of new cases can be attributed to this risk factor. Sexual transmission of HCV can also occur. This mostly involves men who have sex with men, or MSM. It's about 15% of individuals, and the risk is slightly higher in that group that is also co-infected with HIV. And then patients on chronic hemodialysis comprise another group, about 8% uh, of, of infections.
0: Thank you for, for that overview. And what symptoms are present when one is infected with the hepatitis C virus?
1: So the incubation period for hepatitis C ranges quite a bit from either two weeks all the way up to six months. So if you're going to have symptoms, you might not show them for a while. Think thing about HCV is that following the initial infection, approximately 80% of people don't show any symptoms. And that's why it's so tough to identify those that have been infected. But if you happen to have to show symptoms, these can range from fever, fatigue, decreased appetite, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, dark urine or pale stool, and joint pain and jaundice. But again, it's just a small fraction of the individuals that are infected will, will show those symptoms.
0: And you wrote about the World Health Organization that they have said, Ambitious HCV targets for the year 2030, including increasing treatment access to 80% of those eligible, reducing incidence by ninety percent, and decreasing mortality by sixty-five percent due to all causes of viral hepatitis, including HCV. What are some of the critical requirements to meet their targets?
1: So that's it's a great question. There are actually three main requirements that we're looking at to, to meet these targets. So they include knowledge of one's status, access to curative therapy, and prevention to new infections. As far as the knowledge of status is concerned, it's estimated that in the U.S. only 55% of individuals are aware of their HCV status. And again, this goes back to not showing symptoms upon infection. But there's still an estimated 4.1 million people shown to be HCV seropositive. So when I say seropositive, I mean that you've made antibodies to HCV, which confirms a prior exposure to the virus about 30% of untreated seropositive people will spontaneously clear HCV. So they don't, they'll get rid of the virus and there will be no additional problems from that. But there's another 70% that needs some sort of medical intervention to prevent long-term problems associated with HCV. And so these long-term problems include liver failure or even cancer. And so the key factor limiting knowledge of one's status is getting tested. The second critical requirement is access to curative therapy. So I, I can't state this Strongly enough, therapy is curative and greater than 95% of infections. So it's it's really effective. In 2017, only 7% of HCV-infected people globally had been treated. And in the US, uh, about 120,000 people were uh, a year are treated, which is really less than 5% of those with HCV. It's really unclear what the reasons behind this are, but this seems to be decreasing rather than increasing. So some of the successes to bringing access to therapy to individuals is that the cost of hepatitis C treatment has decreased, and that's due to increased competition from various drug makers. There are also programs that contract for lowering costs, and there are innovative state treatment models. However, there are still some barriers to access. Some of these include restrictions on the providers or the types of providers that can manage hepatitis C. Patient sobriety requirements uh, can deter people from seeking life-saving treatment and then prior authorization processes mediated through insurance can also need to be completed before treatment can begin. So I mentioned knowledge of status and access to curative therapy. The third critical element is prevention of new infections. And so uh, first and foremost, there is a need to address the opioid epidemic. And then in addition to that, harm reduction programs and interventions such as syringe service programs and substance abuse disorder treatment are essential to reduce all bloodborne infections, including hepatitis C.
0: In regards to knowledge of status, here in the US, what are the current screening recommendations?
1: There's been some shifting epidemiology which has influenced uh, revision of screening guidelines. And so in 2013, the recommendations were to screen just the baby boomers and those engaging in high risk behaviors. And when they looked back at how effective that was, they found that they missed a significant percent of positives using this criteria. And so in 2020, the CDC. The American Association of Liver Disease, or ASLD, and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommended that everyone 18-year-old will be screened at least once. Pregnant women should be screened at every new pregnancy, and you should offer periodic testing for those with ongoing risk factors. And so all of this is starting to address the gap in knowing one's status, which can affect access to, to therapy.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about the role of the laboratory in the diagnosis and monitoring of HCV infection. How is HCV detected?
1: So before we go over how it's detected, let's go over the case definition of acute HCV. And so there are two criteria. There's clinical criteria and laboratory criteria that are needed for the case definition. Clinical criteria includes individuals that are at least three years of age and they have jaundice or elevated total bilirubin levels or an elevated ALT, which is a marker of liver injury, and they shouldn't have any other possible diagnosis. That combined with laboratory criteria is essential. So the laboratory criteria is that you have a positive RNA molecular test or an antibody test with a negative test or negative result in the previous 12 months. The 2016 CDC case definition, which was replaced by the 2020 uh, case definition, did not include bilirubin measurements, but more importantly, it didn't stratify between presumptive and conformatory. So presumptive diagnosis is based on just the antibody testing and confirmatory diagnosis is based on molecular testing. So as far as detection methods, the CDC currently recommends a tiered approach for HCV screening and diagnosis. And so within this tier, the first test is for the presence of antibodies. And that's used to determine whether an individual has been exposed to HCV in the past or whether they have a current or active HCV infection. In the second tier of testing following a positive antibody test is molecular testing. And that's used to confirm infection and it serves as a baseline prior to the initiation of medication. So when therapy is considered, ultimately genotyping can be performed to predict treatment efficacy.
0: What are some of the diagnostic testing challenges that labs face?
1: One of the important challenges that that the labs face is applying this tiered approach to samples that we get in the lab. So in in an ideal setting, two individual specimens would be sent to the central laboratory for testing a specimen for the antibody test and a second specimen for molecular testing. However, if our positivity rates for serological testing are low, so maybe three or five percent, three to five percent of these tests are positive, we're really discarding greater than 95 percent of these secondary specimens. And so these second specimens that are sent for molecular testing are unnecessary and very wasteful. Alternatively, if you only ask for a single specimen, then communicating a positive antibody result to a treating physician and expecting the patient to result for a second blood draw can be problematic as well. So the patients may be unwilling or unable to schedule a follow-up appointment for additional blood draws due to financial or transportation issues. And then this can lead to an overall extension of the diagnostic time from days to weeks to even months. So ideally, we should be able to reflex molecular testing from a single reactive antibody test. But there are issues with this too. Accessing sample tubes outside of laboratories that are equipped and trained to perform molecular testing can lead to a potential false positive through unintentional contamination events. So one solution is a single-line serologic and molecular test platform, and that can decrease this possibility of contamination. The drawback is a lot of that equipment is not always readily available.
0: And how should the serological and molecular test results be interpreted?
1: So there's challenges here as well. So a positive antibody test and a negative molecular test can either signal viral clearance, previous treatment, or a false positive result. And so remember, the antibody is going to be positive for life, but the molecular test will detect whether there's active uh, virus there. So if you think the antibody test is a false positive, you can choose to test on a different assay platform. Most manufacturers have a slightly different set of targets, and that's why that would work. The same holds true if you believe that the molecular test is a false negative. Finally, a recent infection can lead to a negative antibody test, but with the appropriate clinical science, so if somebody's got elevated liver function tests, then a molecular test should be considered because you could be in what's called this window period before the appearance of antibodies. So to briefly summarize, a Positive antibody test indicates presumptive HCV infection and should be clarified with an RNA molecular test to determine if infection is current, resolved, or false positive. So if it's current, the molecular test will be positive, and if it's resolved or false positive, the molecular test will be negative.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that overview. So we've discussed transmission, screening, diagnosis, and monitoring of HCV. Let's turn now to treatment. How can HCV be treated, and are there any new treatments on the horizon?
1: So prior to 2014, the standard of care for chronic HCV infection was based primarily on interferon alpha therapy coupled with ribavirin. So effective treatment required accurate genotyping. Genotypes 2 and 3 responded really well. Genotypes 1, 4, and 6 required longer treatment and increased exposure to these toxic and, and frequent side effects. So September of 2014, sofaspavir was the first FDA-approved direct direct-acting antiviral, or DAA, and since then, a handful of pangenotypic therapies have become available. So when I say pangenotypic, it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter what the genotype is. And so you don't, the need for genotyping has actually decreased. Many of these drugs are effective in individuals with extensive liver damage or cirrhosis, and so treatment can be effectively started at any point along the continuum of disease. These drugs are really effective at a cure, as I mentioned before. So any new treatments would either decrease the frequency of taking them, maybe decrease the number of weeks there need to be taken, or mitigate any potential side effects. And I think that's where those new treatments that are on the horizon uh, might fall into. But we have very effective therapies now, so the room for improvement is actually much smaller.
0: And how can the efficacy of HCV treatment be monitored?
1: You want to follow HCV through molecular testing, a very sensitive molecular test. So if you fail to detect HCV after you complete therapy, that's called a sustained virologic response or an SVR. So achieving an SVR-12 or an SVR-24 refers to undetectable HCV levels at 12 and 24 weeks post-therapy. And if you can achieve these levels at 12 and 24, that correlates with a nearly 100% cure rate.
0: Wow. That's fantastic. So to wrap it up, where do you see HCV testing trends going?
1: You know, I think of the three critical elements of HCV uh, elimination, knowledge of status, access to care, and uh, prevention of disease, HCV testing is really going to have the most impact on, on knowledge of status and our ability to reach those WHO targets.
0: My last question, what types of innovation could solve for some of the diagnostic testing challenges that you mentioned earlier?
1: Sure, so we've already mentioned the need for single specimen reflex testing to shorten that window from testing to diagnosis, and several manufacturers are now responding to that. Secondly, there are other strategies that include uh, the development of really sensitive antigen detection methods that could rival molecular viral detection. So for this strategy, for it to be effective, we would need it not only to be very sensitive, but also field deployable. So running these tests outside of the central laboratory. That's my third point, is that there are point-of-care molecular tests currently used outside of the US, and their adoption here will also start to tip the scales in our favor. So bringing the testing to the patient, as opposed to the patient coming to the physician to get tested. And so that's my last point, The SARS-CoV-2 pandemic has taught us enormously about the potential for at-home and private testing. So as testing becomes democratized and access to care and treatment less stigmatized, hopefully we can get back on track to meeting the WHO 2030 targets.
0: Thank you, Dr. Parikh, for the insightful discussion today focused on the hepatitis C virus. It's clear that the lab has an important role in the fight to reduce incidence of HCV and decrease mortality due to all causes of HCV. I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast episode. Make sure to review sections within the podcast description for reading materials we have suggested, including Dr. Parikh's article. Based on today's podcast, I leave you with our pop quiz, what detection methods are used to diagnose HCV infection? You can go back and listen again if you'd like some more details. Thank you so much for listening today. Please subscribe to Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where we will be discussing more complex questions we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Orthoclinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 80 years because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and safe.